enter into the joy of your Lord. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of November 15th, 2020 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. Rev. John Howenstein reminds us that the Church proclaims in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that Messiah Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We rejoice that he has placed his cross between his judgment and our souls. Now, redeemed from sin and death and made heirs in him of everlasting life, when he comes again in power and great triumph to judge the world, we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. By daily seeking to know him, his character and his faithfulness as revealed in scripture, we are strengthened for greater faithfulness so we may bear fruit that glorifies him and expands his kingdom. Now, on to the lectionary readings. Our first reading is from the book of the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, beginning at verse 7 and then going on to verse 12. So hear the words of the Lord. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore their good shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. 
For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion for the 24th Sunday after the Pentecost, a familiar one, Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14, the parable of the talents. That's right, please stand. As we honor the Lord, you would stand in the presence of a king, no less so when a king is teaching us. Hear now the words of the king. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to the other two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability, and immediately went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own 
with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're in that season of the church year where all of the appointed readings, and this goes for about four to six weeks, the close of the church year and the beginning of a new church year in Advent, the season of Advent coming up in just two weeks. But we're in that season of the church year with the appointed readings where the focus is on the end. Jesus coming again, as we say in the creeds, uh, he is coming in again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that's to be good news for us. So for uh, the prayer uh, before beginning the sermon, I want to use a prayer that's used throughout the Advent season, uh, which also uh, speaks to these closing weeks of uh, the church year and uh, places before us the reality of the Lord's coming and how we who are believers are to, uh, to stand. You sent your beloved Son to redeem us from sin and death. And you made us heirs in him of everlasting life. And when he shall come again in power and great triumph to judge the world, Lord, grant that we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So that's what we want to be encouraged to do as we look at the readings tonight, to be further equipped and confident and encouraging of one another that uh, day by day we can grow stronger, that without shame or fear, we will rejoice to behold his appearing. And from the gospel reading, if there's uh, one uh, verse that, or part of a verse that really struck me, that, this, that picks this up and which holds up and magnifies the character of the one telling the parable and the, uh, the character of um, the Lord within the, uh, the parable, it's enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the Lord's heart for us. That's his deepest heart. He made us for himself and that we would enter into his joy. Hear that, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, first of all, we can be thankful that these four to six weeks each year are, are given us where we're placed before the reality of what we say in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed of he is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. It, it's usually, well, for many of us, those scripture readings are home. Of course, of course, we, we long for that. We wait for that. 
We stand on tiptoe. We try to prepare ourselves for it, but it is not known by the wider world. What is heard is not understood or maybe mocked or scoffed at or at least uh, can be a distracting or irritating uh, message. Basically, what's home for us, a lot of the world who knows him not, just doesn't get it and doesn't want to hear it. Sadly, there have been seasons throughout the history of the church, and we are surely in one of those now, where the church, well, not all the church, but too many places in the church is not confident of that. The, the parts of the creed is church words to get through. Um, discussions are not, are not easily held on, on, on that, and um, it's, uh, it's just a sad state because when there's no longer confidence in that part of the gospel, there's no longer confidence and sometimes not even seen as necessity for the other parts of the gospel. If there's no accountability, if there's no consequences, if everything is just eternally nice, or um, then why a cross? Why a real savior who sheds real blood upon the real cross for the real forgiveness of sin so that we can stand before his judgment with real confidence? I remember way back before I was ordained, but in a setting with many, many esteemed clergy, that it was this season of the year, and uh, the preacher appointed for the day spoke to the lessons directly, unapologetically, and briefly. It was the shortest sermon I ever remember hearing, and I can almost remember every word of it. And that was over 40 years ago. And uh, basically, the preacher appointed for the day, one of the esteemed, not the most esteemed, but one of the esteemed, called attention to uh, the, uh, the lessons being about Jesus Christ coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and the day of the Lord, the lessons we've heard today. And he said, sadly, many of us in this room, this is church words that we can say very well, but we don't take them seriously. We don't believe them. Some of us even mock and scoff them. But deep in our heart, we know that it is really, really true, and we're very uncomfortable with that. And at that, he just sat down. There was great upset from that. There was quiet conversations throughout the rest of the day and uh, at uh, breaks in the conference. There was just an undercurrent that went about. It seemed like the entire agenda got derailed by naming the elephant on the table <laughs> and not let it escape 
the clear proclamation of scripture and the creeds, especially to those who had the responsibility of leading the church and even the denomination. So, and that was 40 years ago. I'm not so sure that things have improved since that time. As a priest of the church in parish life, about 36 years in, in parish life, I uh, had the responsibility of doing far, far too many funerals. And there is a prayer in the burial liturgy that uh, can be used and at the graveside after the services are over in the church, after the procession to the grave, after the body is lowered in the ground and earth is put on top, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, after all the final prayers of commendation, there's one last prayer that has gone through many of the liturgies within the Anglican Church that is, uh, that is prayed, that puts all those gathered squarely before the clear proclamation at witness of Scripture. Final words to be proclaimed of the truth of Scripture and of our Lord uh, over the, um, the mortal remains of one beloved now entrusted to the earth and entrusted with the Lord's hands. I won't read the whole prayer, but the beginning of the prayer goes like this. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray that you would place your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls now and in the hour of our death. So what happened by the preacher at that conference happens at every burial at the graveside. At any burial, uh, you know, uh, a variety, a wide diversity of people may be gathered um, uh, from those whose home and heart is with the Lord to those who know him not. Um, and the uh, prayer does a lot of heavy lifting, whereas, uh, whereas maybe the preaching or the liturgy, uh, it might have... Um, it might have not been as clear. One last time to, to set it forth. The reality of life. There is a time of judgment. Life does become fair because God's wrath is poured out on sin, but yet his heart is he wants none to perish. But yet the words that we, we seldom acknowledge or very much avoid or fight against as a global culture, the idea of the end of judgment. But he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. And he has already set his passion and cross and death, should we choose it in our freedom, between his judgment and our souls. And this is something that happened not just in the hour of our death, but a lifestyle that we're to live every day as his disciples. I'm thankful for these prayers and liturgy as a priest to allow uh, occasions for godly conversation 
um, that uh, we can ref uh, could reflect together with people on the prayers that were offered, you know, at the at the graveside. They've been a, a great friend uh, to help um, present the Lord and uh, encourage all of us in our faith. So in our readings today, we start out in Zephaniah, and Zephaniah makes extremely clear what is put forth in all the prophets, that we live before a holy God who is loving and patient, but there will surely come a day, the day of the Lord, when his wrath will be poured out upon sin. And uh, we are, Zephaniah sets that moment before us. It says, everybody be quiet. You know, the day is coming. And he has one concern that he names in particular. He says, people have become complacent. And they malign my character. I mean, I put those words in, but basically saying is, in their arrogant complacency, say they say, God doesn't care. He's not going to do one thing one way or the other. It's of inconsequence. I mean, they might as well say there's not a God there at all. But here it says, yeah, there is a God, but he won't say anything one way or another. And then God says, yes, I am going to say something. But in the chapter that follows this, he offers opportunity for repentance. He says in the, next, in the next chapter, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And that's always the pattern in the prophets. He smites to heal. He judges so that he can restore if there is repentance. But the first in that list of seeking the Lord, seeking the righteousness, and seeking humility is I just want to focus tonight on seeking the Lord and knowing what his character is. The big flaw that happened in Zephaniah was they didn't understand God's character. They had come to a completely erroneous conclusion about who God is. If you're there at all, you don't matter one way or another. And therefore, that gave them every reason to blame the living God for their own complacency and their own self-righteousness and their own pride. Basically saying, seek me. And when we seek him, we'll know who he is, that he is a God who cares, who is very much there and he cares very much. But the end, the end of it, for those who seek him, Zephaniah ends this way. And again, the, the great ending uh, that we see in Zephaniah is worded throughout each of the prophets in one way of the Lord's promise of, of restoration uh, for those who will, knowing the day is coming when he's going to pour out his wrath upon sin, can say there is opportunity for repentance. The Lord has taken away your judgments. These are the cl closing words of Zephaniah. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is now in your midst. You'll see disaster no more. In that day, it will be said 
to Jerusalem, fear not. Let not your hands be weak. Here's my favorite. My wife has written it on a a blackboard that is right outside our back door. And every time I go in and out through our porch door, I read aloud those words. And I say it 10, 20, 30, 40 times a day, as many times as I go in and out across the threshold of our house. I love this verse. It ministers to me. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is the heart and the character of the God who comes to judge sin, to pour out his wrath upon us, but wants to place himself and his cross and his death and his resurrection between that judgment and our souls because he loves us with an everlasting love. Can we let ourselves just this night for a moment marinate, just bathe in that image of a God who is our Lord, who is a singing Lord. When we sing, we join into his heart. We join into his song. We join with angels and archangels of all the company of heaven. Let ourselves for a moment just bask, bathe, marinate in that reality of our God who is a singing God, who sings with blessing and favor and love over us if we will repent and return to him. The Lord our God is in our midst. That's where he loves to be. He made us for himself. He made us for himself and he wants us in fellowship with himself. The mighty one saves. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. If those in Zephaniah who, had, who had, were so far from the Lord, if they had known that character of God, surely they wouldn't have blessed themselves or cursed themselves with, let's be complacent, because we know who God is. We know all about God. He knows nothing. He cares nothing. It doesn't matter to him. So be complacent, do our own thing. We'll be the bosses here. No one's the boss of me. I'll be my own, the captain of my own fate, and it'll be good. And he says, no, it won't be good. It won't be good. But I hear within this, and it's closing heart of God revealed you know, his, his hunger and his desire not to smash us, but that we would repent and so that he could give us himself. Thessalonians picks up the same theme of complacency. That, uh, that that's, that's, the, that's the great enemy as disciples to our spiritual life individually and to our life and witness together as the church. And therefore, in Thessalonians, uh, St. Paul, several times he says, encourage one another with these truths that I'm telling you. And one part when he's talking about, I, I, I hear how you're loving one another, but I want you to do it more and more. And twice he, does, he repeats that phrase, 
You're doing this, great. Now keep on doing it continually more and more. And then he, after that, he picks up twice the phrase of, therefore, encourage one another. Have each other's back. First, he calls them, we heard last week, to encourage with one another that the Lord is coming himself. With a shout from heaven, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, the dead will rise, and then we'll be joined with them. And he says, he's coming. He's coming. And today, he says, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Wrath will come upon sin. The day of the Lord is coming. But the Lord didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that we, whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And then following this, he talks about, so, you know, my own words, have each other's backs, brethren. For those who are unruly, use these truths to warn one another. That's what the preacher was trying to do that day in the conference. He didn't want to shame the people, but he's trying to say, we're the leaders of the church. Let's put a warning out. We've lost confidence in our own message. And some of you are relieved about it. What other message do we have? At the funerals. You know, it's not to make someone feel bad at the death of their loved one, but to say, in reality, there is a judgment coming, but yet, as we lay our beloved into the ground, we who know Christ can rejoice because his passion and uh, death and resurrection have already been set between that judgment and our souls. The judge himself has stepped down off the bench, declared us guilty, stepped down off the bench and says, I'll take the punishment. And he said, so therefore, brethren, warn those who are unruly, not to go and destroy them, but to to build them up, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the the weak, and be patient with all. So Thessalonians is being honest that is that you know we can fall in to we can be so confident on one side of things and then when we're in a place where the Lord is bringing us into deeper trust and obedience to say now I'm calling for deeper faithfulness so things can go uh, so you can have deeper blessing in life within your own life the life of your community the loved ones around you so that you can bear fruit I need to take you deeper. And all of a sudden, we can find ourselves, you know, doubting the character of God. What? You're asking me to do this? And all of the strange doubts and thoughts and even darkness begin to well up within us. And we're at that edge where, you know, we have to decide on are the words of scripture the reality that we can anchor ourselves into as stronger than just the crazy birds that fly through our head or the dark darts of the enemy that attack our soul? Can I trust these words of scripture? Can I trust these truths? And what I think what Thessalonians is saying is it's sometimes it's difficult, if not impossible, to do it alone. We need each other. I like to compare it to going under anesthesia. If I'm going under anesthesia, I, I can, I'm not thinking clearly. I, I'm, I'm going to be going under. 
But uh, so when some of us are going under sometimes, uh, we're to reach out and to warn, to care for, to be patient with one another, and to do that encouragement of uh, lifting up. We, scripture continually tells us to be encouragers of one another in the faith because we do have weak moments. I love it the, where it comes to the end of Thessalonians where uh, the blessing is given by Paul himself talking about the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body to preserve to be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this one little sentence. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. There, once again, the character of the Lord. The character of the Lord. He wants us so fast, but wants us so, so much that uh, he himself is at work. We're to be working in faithfulness, aware that there's consequences and accountability. We're to be encouraging one another, but God himself is at work. He who has begun the good work in you uh, will, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Or as he says right here, the, God, the, the Lord who calls you is faithful. He also will do it. The character of God. Now all this is coming up to our gospel reading where Jesus, the one speaking this parable, where is he? What is he doing? He just left the temple during Holy Week. Uh, the final week before his crucifixion, he entered Jerusalem. He taught in the temple. He's been examined as the Passover lamb. And now it's his last time of walking through the, the temple doors out and it said he left the temple and added, he departed. Boy, I'm thinking back to when God's spirit left the temple in the book of Ezekiel, you know, and uh, uh, his glory left the temple. But there, God incarnate leaves the temple. The doors are shut behind him. And uh, he begins to go and speak to the disciples alone, privately, about the end. And the disciples want to know, how's it all going to work? What's the timetable? What's going to happen? You know, lay it all out for us. And he eases them away from that just to say, to, to say only the Father knows this. What you need to be concerned about is it's going to come when you don't expect it, and you're to be watching, you're to be prepared, you're to be faithful, you're to be steadfast. And way back in the beginning of the Matthew, when he was first uh, on the Sermon on the Mount laying out, you are to be salt. You are to be light. Nobody lights a bushel, uh, a light, and puts it under a bushel. You are to be like a city on a hill. All of these things talking about you're in the world right now. These things are going to come. They're going to come quickly. They're going to come, come unexpectedly. Only the Father knows, but the question he's bringing them around to through all of his teachings is, will you be ready, meaning will you be faithful? Will you be investing in the kingdom? Will you be bearing fruit? Will you be walking with me? I am going to be at work. He's gone, but yet he's always present too by this Holy Spirit. And, and, and 
Will you be steadfast at work with me? Will you be using your freedom not to do what you want, but to build the kingdom? And so we come today to uh, the, 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 the teaching, the parable, the sayings on the, uh, uh, of uh, those, you know, the first two, I'm going to give you according to your ability, five. I'm going to give you according to your ability, two. I'm going to give you according to your ability, one. And the first two, I've doubled it. I've doubled it when the master comes back and he says those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Again, that's his character. That's his vision. That's his purpose. That's his, that's his heart for our destiny. To be in the joy of the Lord. Now and in eternity. In eternity, but now as we walk with him in faithfulness. But the third one. He came up and just like the, 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 um, the uh, folks who needed to repent in, in uh, Zephaniah. Who said, we know the Lord. We know him. He doesn't know. One way or the other, he doesn't care one way or the other. Well, this guy got it wrong, too. He goes, I know you. He, he buried the talent in the ground. Basically, the Lord's offering him himself. So I don't want you. I'm bury you alive. <laughs> but, so, yeah, before it's money, before it's this, before it's that, it's an offering of the master's own self in trust. And I know who you are. He didn't know him at all. What did he say? I know about you, Lord. I know about you. You're hard. And that word hard in scripture and in other places in, in literature in the Greek is only ever used one way. And that is very derogatory. You're hard. You're austere. You're mean-spirited. You're dry. You're stiff. You're cruel. You ask of people things that are impossible. You're never satisfied, never satisfied with what good that they can do. You're like the Egyptian taskmasters who tried to, uh, who demanded that bricks would be made double in quantity without straw. We, I knew, I knew you, Lord. You didn't know him at all. I knew you, Lord, you were hard and cruel and merciless. And, uh, and therefore, I was afraid of you. And I threw it all away. I don't want it. Take it back. And the master in there, which I think is revealing God, says, oh, no, <laughs> you're calling yourself afraid. I'm not buying it. I'll tell you who you are. You're wicked and you're lazy. Wicked in the sense of you are rebelling. You want to be the boss of you. You want to be your own owner. You want to deal the cards. You want to call the shots. You want to be all about you. And so you are in rebellion as me. You have the title of my servant, but you don't serve me at all. You don't know me at all. And uh, again, the one giving the parable is one who's going to the cross after these sayings and after the parable that follows, it's he tells his disciples, okay, we're all done with this teaching, but now I'm going to be crucified. And then the next sentence says, 
and they were planning on crucifying him or murdering him. So the one who's telling it is already showing the, uh, the, uh, the incarnate love of God in that he's going to, out of love, die in our place for our sin. The one who is the singing God, who rejoices over us and quiets with his love, he's now incarnate, now flesh, to do that to the uttermost by dying in our place for our sin. How different the character in Old and Hebrew scriptures and New Testament are consistently revealed and further and further magnified of the everlasting love of God and of his faithfulness to us. And that statement, I know who you are. You're hard and cold and cruel, and I want nothing to do with you. Take it all back. And, and uh, God, I'm afraid of you. And God says, you're not afraid of me. You're in rebellion against me. I guess there'd be some fear with that too, but basically you're rebelling with me and therefore you've given yourself an excuse for your complacency or for your laziness. You took your movie and played it on my screen. You took the darkness of your own heart and projected it onto me as the living God and distorted all the other revelation in between. So, the whole point that I want to get to in all this tonight is how important it is that we know where home is. That we keep on reminding ourselves and bathing ourselves and marinating in ourselves of God as he reveals himself to us. And those times when we are tested and stretched to say, Lord, you're asking me to do this? Are we now starting to doubt his character or do we still see him as the singing Lord who wants to quiet us with his love and live in our midst and to go whatever he asks for us, even if it's hard, where he asks us to trust us and obey us, to trust him and obey him and to shake us out of our complacency. It's not for the purpose of, of being a hard master, but of giving us blessing and life for ourselves, for our congregations, for the watching world. Now, it doesn't mean it'll always be easy. It may be very, very painful and very, very difficult. But is it good? Is it good? And is it right? And is it life? And is it blessing? I find that we are invited to see ourselves as all of the characters in Jesus' parables at times. There are seasons where we, we know. Thank you, Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we know the joy. We've entered into the joy of our master, not when we die, but right now. Like, yeah, to obey you and to trust you, this feels good. It's, even when it's hard, why was I waiting so long? Why was I so stupid? Oh, wow, this is great. But then doesn't he always all bring us to a point where at some level we have to say, yikes. If he came back today... I know my own heart. I know the doubts that go through. I know the struggles. I'm really behaving like that servant who said, not this time, Lord, not this time. And that's where we need to be, have those holy habits and holy disciplines of coming back and, and uh, continuing the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, 
picking up scripture and even mechanically reading through it to read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest and just have ourselves so saturated with the revealed character of God that, uh, that without shame or fear, we can rejoice to be uh, that when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I'm going to close with a, uh, another prayer from the prayer book. Again, this has been used, I don't know for how many generations, but uh, it's a prayer of self-dedication. And uh, it invites God's spirit in to guide our imaginations, the things that get us in trouble, that we would be faithful, that we would make good choices, that we would use our freedoms for the extension of his kingdom. And simply this, almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we ask you, as you will, always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.